Well, good evening and welcome. Uh, we are continuing in a series that we're calling Clarity, that we're trying to give clarity in the Old Testament. Is the Old Testament just this old thing that we don't have to adhere to anymore, or is it something that can help and apply to our lives uh, today? And today we're talking about the law. What purpose does the law have? And we'll get into that in just a minute. Probably about once a year, maybe twice a year, I'll allow myself to go down a rabbit hole. I'll find uh, some kind of article or something on the internet uh, that's pretty interesting to me, and chances are you may have done this too in this certain arena, but I'll find an article that says these are the 30 weirdest laws you'll find around the world, and maybe an explanation why, maybe not, um, but I found one of, those, one of those articles this week, and you read things, and you're like, man, what? something bad must have happened to make this a law in this place. I want to read you a couple. Um, in, in Britain, in England, you cannot wear a suit of armor into British Parliament. Um, in Poland, you can't wear a Winnie the Pooh shirt, pajama pants, anything. I think it has to do with how he just wears a shirt but no pants. Um, you can't fly a kite in Victoria, Australia. Um, you, can't have a, you can't make a sandcastle in Spain, anywhere in Spain. You just can't make a sandcastle. It's illegal in British Columbia, Canada to kill Bigfoot. If you find Bigfoot, you are not allowed to kill him. It's against the law. Um, in India, if you know that there are locusts coming, you are breaking the law if you don't warn people by playing a drum. Okay, that's a law in India. But my favorite is in, it just said in parts of France, so uh, a lot, lot, lot to be determined there, but in parts of France, you are not allowed to die without purchasing a burial plot. You cannot die without purchasing a burial plot. Now, how enforcement of that, I don't really know. Um, if they like, nope, you're, you're, you're gonna, I don't know what they do. If they just like buy one for you and take it out of the inheritance that you would have left to somebody uh, or something more unique, I don't know. It's kind of a fun, fun thing to think about. Um, but when we think through the law, there, there's laws that you see no loitering signs, and we have laws as a nation, we have laws as a state, we have ordinances as a city. There are a lot of laws, there are a lot of things that we have to adhere to. And laws can be confusing. There's laws that are in place that we don't know why they're there. And when we read through the Bible, if you've ever tried to do like a read through the Bible in a year or read through the Old Testament in a year, um, you normally get a couple books in before you're like, what in the world am I reading? This is the weirdest stuff I've ever read. So today we're going to talk about kind of a 30,000 foot view of what is the law why do we have the law? Does it help us today? And what's kind of the, the end game of the law? So the law is what the, the, the Old Testament is called, the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what you find in the Torah, which is the Hebrew word for the law, is you find this narrative for, for the first 50 chapters is, is Genesis. You see narrative, it's God creating, it's Adam and Eve, it's Cain and Abel, it's Abraham, it's all these things happening. And then the same thing in Exodus, you start to see Joseph and his family move to, uh, to Egypt and they're thriving and things are going well. And then God provides them a way out in Exodus. But somewhere along the way, there's these probably close to a million people that Moses is leading through the wilderness that God has kind of promised that they're going to have this promised land. Um, we, Logan talked really clearly and really well about the covenant last week. If you, if you didn't get to catch it, you should go back and watch. Um, but they're, they're now at this spot where they're wandering around the wilderness. They stop in at, the, at Mount Sinai, and you have 68 or 69 chapters of narrative, and it hits pause, and you get Ten Commandments for the first time. The classic Ten Commandments. 
And what happens is he spends time on the mountain with God. He's getting these laws. He's scribing them down on these tablets. He comes down, and the Hebrew people have just messed up completely. And instead of worshiping God, they've started worshiping this golden calf that they've created for themselves in Moses' absence. And he's like, what in the world is going on? As he gets angry, and he breaks these things, which, like, I don't want to be the recipient of someone breaking a stone tablet. I don't know if it's over a back or, like, it, it doesn't seem like it would feel good, but he did that, and then he goes back up on the mountain and scribes them down again from God. And then you have a series through Exodus of people living and working, wandering, and God giving laws. And it's almost like as they're going and, and living and working, some situation comes up, and God gives them more laws. One of, one of the, the clearest ones is right after the Ten Commandments, that they don't follow one of the Ten Commandments, and there's a plague that happens to them, and they have people in their community that die. And then God gives them ordinances, laws, about what to do with dead bodies. So the law is over the course of these five books of God having, there's narrative, there's law. In Leviticus, you see about a quarter of the book is just the laws around priesthood, the laws around how to worship, how to do these things. And then in Numbers, you have the same, it, it, they're, they're wandering again. And Deuteronomy is this kind of sermon on what are God's laws and why do we keep them? That is the Torah. That is what, when the, the Bible talks about the law, that's what it's talking about. Now, there are kind of three different things that in the New Testament when they refer, we kind of have to know which one they're talking about. There's that law, what's called the Mosaic law that was given to Moses. Moses to help lead the Israelite people in this specific time, there's the law that uh, the Pharisees would have had where they took that law and they added a lot to it to make sure and insulate themselves from even potentially sinning and saying, we'd never want to do that, so we're going to insulate ourselves, make sure we're following the law, make sure that we add all these rules to it to make sure we're not sinning. And then there's the law of just the Old Testament. They referred to it almost as a shorthand of saying, hey, this is the law. So it's important to know which one they're talking about. But in the law, what you see is it's 613, and there's a small amount of variance in that, that, that there's an argument among scholars that it's either 611 or 613 laws. 613 laws, commands, given to Israelite people through the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the Mosaic law, and it's broken up into three categories. The three categories are this. The Ten Commandments, the classic, thou shalt not, thou shalt honor your father and mother, shall not covet, shall not commit adultery. Then you have laws for life. These are like what we saw of, of dead bodies, things like that, that you're like, listen, you don't need to do this. And then you have laws for worship. So what are the purposes of these? Why do we have these? Are they practical to us today is what we're going to be talking about. I want to read Leviticus 20, 22 through 24 as we start. This is what God says to the, the Israelite people right in the middle of Leviticus. He says, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out, that you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I've said to you, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey, I am your God who has separated you from these people. There's two main purposes that we see in the Mosaic law. And the first one is the law shows us the heart of God. The law shows us the heart of God that you will see in a, in a rule or a restriction created by someone in authority, their character and their heart. I have four kids, four boys, 
And the laws and the restrictions and the rules that we try to put in place are not to push down and limit and belittle and make small my children. My rules for them are to keep them safe and to help grow them up into men of God. Now, sometimes I fall short of that and I don't do that. But my heart for instilling laws in them is not so that they would not have fun. My, my laws for them are not so that they would have a bad time. My laws in them are not so that they would just hate me. My laws are so that they would understand and know my heart for them is that they would flourish and things would go well for them and that they would grow up to be men of God. In the same way, what we see with the Israelite people and the laws that God started to give them is that he did not give them laws to limit and restrict them. He gave them laws so that they knew how to live and operate, so that they would know and understand what God's heart is. It's for them, it's not against them. The first thing you see is there's laws about health and safety and practical things. There were things that they would have been doing wandering through the desert that they would have unknowingly to them been bringing death into into their house things about hygiene, things about cleanliness, things about just the way that they would have operated that they wouldn't have known any different. That there's things that we look at, like the thing with dead bodies, that's like, okay, that's kind of weird that he gives them that. They didn't know that then. There wasn't science behind it. There wasn't, there wasn't science around what we should and shouldn't do around sick people. But there's things that we do that we see in the Bible that are present in modern medicine that God handed to them as a gift so that they would flourish and so that they would do well. Things that helped them, not things that hurt them. Things that helped with their diet, things that helped with their hygiene, things that made sure that they didn't die of simple things like dysentery. That was God's gift to them, their health and their safety. But it's not just that. It's not just like, hey, I want you to be able to survive this desert. He wanted them to be a holy people, to be set apart, to be different. In Deuteronomy 22, there's aspects of what he talks about as you should be honest with one another. There should be a general sense of goodness in the way that you relate to each other. That people in that time, what would have been happening all around them were people that were somewhat barbaric. If you read about that century, there were people that were unkind to each other, that were, it was a bloody, ugly, disgusting world, and he was saying, it won't be so with you. You will be a people that reflect the heart of the person who leads you, and that's God. That because he chose them, that they would both look holy and that they would look different. God said that his goal would be that he is holy and that we would be holy like him. And the same is true of the Israelite people. He wanted them to have a sense of goodness, a sense of honesty, a sense of morality that wouldn't have been true through other people. It wouldn't have been true with other groups of people. And this is only true because those are characteristics of God. He wanted them to care about the people that were around them. He wanted them to have a generous heart. He wanted them to to love the people around him the same way that God loves us. And this is true the same that we see in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that God hasn't changed Old Testament to new. It's like a diamond where when you turn it, you see a different aspect of God. You see a different facet, a different characteristic of God because we're looking at it through a narrative of God with his people instead of God through Jesus. You understand the heart of God. You understand who he is. But he also, it's his goodness, but it's also a people that would be set apart. A people that, Almost as you would look at them, you would see, okay, these people are different. And this is where you get to some of the laws of practical living that you're like, does it really matter? 
Is this a law that I have to do today? There's laws about if you have a field, you don't do two different types of seeds in that field. If you have a field, you don't uh, plow it with an ox and a donkey. You just don't do it. Um, There's laws about sewing two different types of fabric together that you shouldn't do it. Why are those things important? Those things are important to see a group of people that their whole life is so changed by the person that leads them, it changes every aspect of them. It changes every single thing about them that we wouldn't be left alone. And this is true of us now. This is true of what God leaves in us now, that he doesn't want to just like save you and let you run and be the same as you've always been. He wants your life to reflect who he is and what he's done in your heart and in your life and that you would reflect him. It shows the heart of God in the way that we would see people how God sees people. There's aspects of it that he called the Israelite people to, that he called the Hebrew nation to, that no one else would have done in that time. He, he gives them a rule in Leviticus 23 where he says, hey, when you plow your field, which would have been a large source of their income, he said, hey, leave the corners and leave the edges so that when someone is coming through and someone who doesn't have a home and someone who's an outcast comes in, you have a place to go that's extra. And he essentially tells them to live their life with margin so that they can be a source of life to the people around them. This was not common then. What God is doing is he's pulling a group of people towards an understanding of who he is. A people that wouldn't have seen it without his law. They wouldn't have just naturally been good. They wouldn't have just naturally started to do these things. They wouldn't have just started to accidentally leaving the end of their row of corn to themselves. They wouldn't have just accidentally been hygienic. They wouldn't have, it only happened because of the grace of God given to them to see the heart of God in what he wanted for them. That he loved them and he showed it to them through his laws. So we see the law shows the heart of God. The second thing we see, the law shows our need for God. The law shows our need for God. One of the things as you read through it that's kind of interesting, there's almost this understanding right away, like from the very beginning as you're, you're reading the laws, as like just because there's a law there doesn't mean you're gonna get it perfect. And this is what's kind of wild. Like you start to see how there was almost a clause of like, hey, you're gonna fail and this is how you seek forgiveness. In Leviticus 4 and 5, it's, it's these offerings that we're supposed to give to God. And this is what he says. In uh, chapter 4, I'm going to read the headings. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Lord of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done or does any one of them, then this says this is what he's supposed to do. In verse 13, he says, in the whole con- if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and it's hidden from the eyes of the assembly of people, and they do any one of the things by the Lord's commandments that ought not be done, and they realize their guilt, this is what they should do. In verse 27, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt, or the sin which is committed is made known to him, he shall bring this offering. That all throughout, there's this idea of you're going to fail. These laws are set up like a mirror. Because there's now a standard, you see how you do and don't meet it. 
Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We get knowledge of sin through understanding the law. And this is where, when, when Paul talks about the law, he almost talks about, like, we, we have the law, and sometimes just the existence of a rule as humans makes us go, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what that says not to do. Tell me the rules and I'll do exactly the opposite. Um, I went to a youth weekend thing a couple of weekends ago and the youth pastor is one of my friends and he was, he was really wise and he goes, hey, here's the rules. Be kind and don't be dumb. Because I feel like if you tell a 14 year old, hey, don't do any pranks, it's like, I should do some pranks. I should mess with some people. I should do X, Y. Like you start thinking of things because if you say don't do it, our mind automatically goes to, I kind of want to do that thing. And this is what Paul is arguing here, that the law is not going to be the standard that, okay, if we reach it, then we are seen as holy, then we are seen as good. He says even the presence of the law helps reflect back on us, and we see how we don't meet the law. And in the same way, it acts as a mirror both to ourselves, and if you angle that mirror at a 45-degree angle, you get to see the heart of God. You see how he acts to us. You see his grace towards us, the way he gives us things we don't deserve, the way he has mercy on us and doesn't give us things that we, the, the negative consequences of what we do deserve. He's kind to us. He's loving to us. He cares for us. And you get to look in that mirror of the law and see who he is. But then you also angle that mirror towards yourself and you see how you don't match up against the law. You see how you don't ever make it up against that law. And one of the things that that I think is important to understand about the law is um, how it relates to the covenant of what Logan brought up last week. The covenant being God's promise to Abraham in the Old Testament, the, the the old covenant of God would make a mighty nation through Abraham, that he would bless all people through Abraham, through one person, and that was Jesus. That through generations, God would bless all people by way of offering salvation to all people through Jesus. And does the law fit in where, where you see the promise of that? God's going to do this. Then you have the law. Is it, okay, God, God will up, up, hold his side of the promise, if I just uphold my side of the promise, and you start to see how, okay, I can't uphold my side of the promise, will God still be good? And that's where, what Logan talked about last week of their ritual of, they would cut an animal in half and walk through it, and the the intention there was, if it was a covenant between two people, you walked through it together and said, if I break the covenant, it should be so with me. But with Abraham, God walked through it alone. Why? Because he was going to uphold both ends of the contract. Paul talks about that in Galatians 3. He talks about covenant or law. How do they play in together? In verse 17, he says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after the covenant, does not annul a covenant 
previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. What he's saying is, is God can't make a promise and then add rules to it later. It would be unkind of me to promise my boys. We normally, our Wednesday morning routine is that we go to St. George's Donuts and we let them each pick out a donut. We pick out a donut for mom and we bring them home. We eat donuts. We have a good time. A lot of times we'll talk about what we talked about on Tuesday. It's some intentional time that I have with my boys. Now there are no strings attached to Donuts Day. It's not, hey, if you cleaned your room, you get donuts. It's not, if you were nice to your brother, you get donuts. It's something we do as the guys in our family. That's always been the understanding. That's always been what we've done. Now, it would be unkind and unfair for me tomorrow morning to wake up and tell my boys, okay, it's donuts day. We, we talked about it last night. Now, once your room is clean, once you do a chore, and once you pick up the living room, and once you put all your toys away, that's adding rules to the previous covenant. And that's what Paul is saying that, they, that God will not do. He's not saying, I'll uphold my end of the covenant as long as you obey the 613 laws. That's not God's heart. That's not what God has done or what God will do. He goes on to say this in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law has been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If you could have righteousness in God's eyes, being seen as fully clean and fully good by upholding the law, you could do that. But he says you can't. But the scripture that could give life, then, sorry, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe, not those who do. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the, under the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our guide until Christ. One of the purposes of the law was to help us see and understand our need for a savior before the savior was even there. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith justified by faith, made just before God by our faith, not by our actions. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. The law can't save us. The law wasn't given to the Israelite people as a standard of the people that, that can live above the line get eternity with God, and the people that live below the line get hell, get eternity separated from God. No, it was an operating order. It was these are the family values. These are the things that we care about. These are the things that we do now that we are God's people. It's a family value. But it's not an outdated and obsolete set of restrictions either. Um, one of the interesting things that as you read about this is in, in Psalms, David, David writes, and he writes about his love for the law. And it almost seems out of place because you're like, he, he loves like a set of rules, like very few people are gonna be like hyped about the Constitution and the things that we have ratified and like are walking around singing how a bill becomes a law in our nation. Like nobody's excited about that. But David was. I wanna read you Psalm 119. He says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts. 
and fix my eyes on your ways. Listen to this. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Listen to this in verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Our soul naturally clings to things that don't matter and will go away. But he says, give me life according to your word. That there's an understanding in what David had to say that there's not just rules and regulations, live above the line or below the line. He knows that we get life by doing this. We get life, we get blessing by understanding what God's word has to say to us. There was, there was, a, um, there was a rabbi who talked about, his name Simlai, who talked about how you have the 613 laws And then over the course of scripture, in some different aspects, you see how the laws were simplified or we caught the essence of them through different people. David in Psalm 29 or 24 talks about the 11 laws. Isaiah did six. Micah brought it down to three. This is what Micah 6, 8 says. He's told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? What does God ask of you? Three things, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. In Amos 5.4, he brought it down to one thing. For thus says the Lord to the house of the Israel, seek me and live. And Jesus said this, Matthew 22.34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of them all? What's the number one? What's the most important? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And Jesus couldn't just answer a question flat. He couldn't just give a direct answer. He adds a second piece to it. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I want to start with the way that this ends. He says the law and the prophets. Jesus wasn't just referring to one small thing. He was referring to the law, the Torah, the first five, and all the prophets. He's saying all of that encapsulated is love God and love people. That at the principle, if we look at what you distill all of the law down, what do we understand? What is practical for us today is that God wants us to love God and love people. There are aspects of God's heart in the laws that show us how we can love God and love people. The devotion, the discipline, the practices of what it should look like to love God and love people are found in the law. And this is all nice and and like fun to think about and it's like, okay, this has been a fun uh, lesson on the law, but what happens when we fail? What happens when we mess this up? Because we will fail at some point. You will fail at some point. We talked about that in Romans 3.20. It says that we will all fail. James 2.10 says, Forever, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That it doesn't matter if you've kept a pretty clean life. It doesn't matter if you've not ever done any of the, the, the seven deadly sins. If you've done one, we're guilty. Not clean, not righteous, not worthy of a relationship with God. Romans 3.20 and the two following verses say this. 
This is what we read earlier. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We won't be made right in front of God. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There was always a rescue plan. There was always an idea. There was always the knowledge that you would fail and that you need forgiveness. We talked about how the law was distilled sometimes, that it was encapsulated and simplified. In Habakkuk 2.4, this little old book of a prophet he says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right with him, within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. There was always the knowledge of you will fail. Something will happen and you will fail and we need a savior. God always knew that you wouldn't be able to keep the standard. God always knew. In Ezekiel 36, 22 and through 26, this is this long, it's almost like Jeremiah. Jeremiah is 52 chapters of, of people failing and dealing with the consequences. Ezekiel is kind of the same. It's a tough thing to read because it's just like, man, this is dark. This is hard to read. I don't know like, how, to, how to come to terms with this. But in the middle of it, in the middle of these people who don't care for God, who aren't, aren't honoring him in the way that they should, this is what it says. It says, therefore, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among all the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Do you see this? There's a kindness that's been being given to the Israelite people that don't deserve it because of God's goodness. Not because they have kind of moved a little bit towards God, but because God is good to them. And in verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And listen to this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. On our own, our hearts are not capable of fulfilling the law. Our hearts aren't capable of even reflecting back to God a life that glorifies him. And it mirrors what we see in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new heart is necessary. You can't change without God. You can't be new without God. You can't clean up enough to, to honor God in a way that he goes, now you're above the line, now you're better, now you're, you're living your life in a way that the law looks at and says, yes, you're good. We're not capable of it. From the Old Testament to new, there had to be something that changed in us. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says this, 
Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He doesn't say it's not useful anymore. He says, I have come to come, not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all of it is accomplished. Jesus came and he says the same thing in Luke. He says, all of the scripture, all of the law, all of the prophets are fulfilled in me. That in this scripture, he's claiming his deity, he's claiming he's God, and he's claiming that he's not done anything that would be breaking the law. And then we go back to Romans 3.20 and it says the righteousness of God has been made manifest in the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. If we have any hope of glorifying God with our actions, it's because the righteousness of God is given to us. It's not something that we can give back to God. It's something that, that we have to get on our hands and knees and go, God, I fail every time. And I want my life to honor and glorify you. So I need Jesus today. I need his righteousness. I need his goodness. Because he's the only one who can fulfill and do what the law says. What we bring in is brokenness, and what we bring in is difficulty and sin, and that falls short of the glory that God had in mind. So we need Jesus. That the law shows us his heart, but it also shows us where we stand with him. And this is not a one and done me and God are good now and I get to go and walk however, it should change everything about us. The same way that the Old Testament, you see people that are trying to honor God with the way that they live. This is the way that we should live and act now. Why? Because he's made us new. Um, I already mentioned I have kids and parenting is one, one of the most uh, testing things you'll probably ever go through if you, if you get the chance. And me and my wife talk all the time about how um, we're doing and how we help each other and hey, you, you know, this is one thing that we need to make sure the boys know and do and um, we try to be the best parents we can for them. We try to look at God's word and see what it says about being a mother and a father and we have really great examples of people that are parents around us and on Sunday afternoon, I feel like I failed in a big way and I let my emotion and I let my anger and I let what I wanted to happen and my dominance to, to happen to one of my kids who their response was not worthy of what I said to them. And I just had, Sunday was such a hard time because I just had to sit back and go, man, I'm so broken. I'm so messed up as a person. I can't even be kind to my child. I know the right thing to do, but I'm still unable to do it. And I remember I, we were going to bed that night and I told my wife, I was like, I just feel like a failure. I feel like I just, I know what the right thing is to do and I, I just didn't, didn't do it. And it just reminded us that every piece of righteousness, every piece of what we can do to honor God has to come from him in us. 
changing us, making us new, taking out a heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. That if you're trying to be good, if you're trying to reach the world's standard on your own, you're going to fail. Or even if you say, I'm going to throw the law out and it doesn't matter, I don't care about being moral or being right, that's not going to bring you life either, and I think you know that. Our only hope is a daily posture with God to say, I see because of your law and because of who you are that you're good and I need help. And this is the gospel. This is what Jesus came to tell us. This is what Jesus came to save us from. Not self-righteousness, righteousness that's found because Jesus came and lived a perfect life so that we could have life in him. That's the beginning of our faith. That's the faith that we can be doing at the end of our lives. God, it's you, it's not me. I need you today.